Well, good morning, church. How are you? It's good to see you guys and to be with you. Uh, my name is Trey Dove. I am the spiritual formation pastor here at Huddle Bible Church. In case you are uh, new, we're so glad that you're here. And we are continuing our journey this morning through the greatest sermon ever preached. That, of course, being the Sermon on the Mount and the preacher being none other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it was from the mountaintop that Jesus gives to all who listen clear instruction pertaining to life in his kingdom. After all, when Jesus began his public ministry, his first pronouncement was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent from Genesis 3 and to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he delivers with great precision and intention a sort of blueprint for life in his kingdom and for any and all who would receive his kingdom. In other words, the theme of Jesus's ministry and this sermon in particular is the kingdom of God. And while the kingdom has not been fully consummated, Jesus is laying out what it looks like to live as a citizen of this kingdom here and now. And so the question we might ask as we hear this, uh, as we go through this sermon on the mountaintop is, how should those who have already received the kingdom of heaven as a gift of God's grace order their lives now so as to reflect their citizenship that they have in Christ. And I want to make it a point to emphasize that word received <laughs> because the kingdom of God is not earned and the kingdom of God is not bought by any one of us. Jesus made that abundantly clear in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 20 of Matthew chapter five when he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. His point isn't, okay, so there's the really religious group and all you have to do is be better than these folks and you're in. So if you're better than the most religious people in your community, I will let you into my kingdom. That's not the point that he's making. Instead, what he's doing is pointing to the religious leaders and teachers of the day, and he's saying, okay, y'all consider these men to be the spiritual cream of the crop, but what I'm saying is that it takes a righteousness beyond even theirs for someone to enter the kingdom of God. No, it can't be bought and it can't be earned because the kingdom of heaven is received by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the king of the kingdom and the citizens are those who have placed their faith and trust in him, who have made him the object of their faith for both life and salvation and who have surrendered their lives to him as his disciples. And this all really matters because, again, the Sermon on the Mount is not a roadmap into the kingdom of God. It's not a beginner's guide to earning God's love or God's favor and ensuring that you get to go to heaven when you die. That's not what Jesus is doing as if you check all the boxes as you go through the Sermon on the Mount. You get to the end, he gives you a grade, and he's like, you're good, you're in. That's not what he's doing. Jesus' sermon was and continues to be for the men and women who follow him now, they are his disciples. This sermon is not for fans of Jesus, but followers of Jesus, people who have received the kingdom of God by grace through faith. It is his discipleship curriculum, and it begins with God's blessing and the Beatitudes, which we've gone through. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, and blessed are the pure in heart. 
Blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are those who endure suffering and persecution for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of righteousness. And while God's blessing is said then to rest upon these type of people described in the Beatitudes, if we are really, really honest with ourselves as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we have to very quickly acknowledge that we have a problem, don't we? Because if we're honest, we're not nearly as aware of our own spiritual bankruptcy and need as we might admit. Or like if we're really self-aware as we go through just the Beatitudes, which we've gone through, we have to come to the realization that not only am I not the type of person that Jesus is describing, but I don't think I can just become the type of person that Jesus is describing. You get what I'm saying? Like, I can't just wake up one day and be more meek. That's not, that's just not going to happen. Or I can't just wake up someday and not be like prone to anger. It doesn't work that way. We need a renovation of the heart. And this is what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are they that mourn. These statements mean that no man can live the Sermon on the Mount in and of himself and unaided or without help. Now, thankfully, last week, Pastor Mike, he preached that all who are in Christ have received a divine helper, and that helper is the Holy Spirit. So whereas left to ourselves, we might be incapable of fulfilling the law of God with the help of the Holy Spirit, our hearts can and do begin to change as we follow Jesus. That rather than like choosing unrighteousness, our desires begin to change and all of a sudden as a Christian, I begin to want to do righteous things, good things that honor the Lord. Like as a Christian, I begin to love and delight in doing what what God's word says is good with the help of the Holy Spirit. And and so here's the reality then, that there is no biblical category for a Christian who is unconcerned with righteousness. That does not exist in the Bible. Now I know in 2023 in America, we just kind of have this thought, like if I just slap Christian on it, like if I just kind of say I'm a Christian, even though I don't care about righteousness, even though my life does not change, it looks nothing like Jesus from start to finish. I prayed a prayer when I was five and though nothing changed, I've punched my ticket and I get to go to heaven, yay for me. And the Bible's saying that's not a category. It doesn't exist. Christians are people who, as they follow Jesus, as citizens of his kingdom, who've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, their desires start to change, and they have a concern for righteousness. They, they, they want to be righteous. And so there's, there's no category for a follower of Jesus who listens to the Sermon on the Mount and does not feel a sense of grief over their own sin or a sense of conviction, or a sense of desire to be like the one described in the Beatitudes, or to be salt and light in the earth, or to be the one who cuts off their hand or gouges out their eye because they hate their lust and their sin, and they want to fight. They want to fight it. The Bible's going to say, the person who says, I follow Jesus, but doesn't feel something when they go through the Sermon on the Mount, that's a fan, that's not a follower. So if you feel nothing when you hear the words of Jesus, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, my encouragement is examine your heart. Ask the hard question. Because how can you feel nothing when you hear Jesus say that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, 
for whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I mean, murder's pretty easy to avoid. I'm 29 years old. I'm pushing 30. Not only have I not murdered someone, I never even thought about it. Like I never had the feeling of like, you know, today's the day, I think. I'm going to get up. I'm going to put on my nice shoes and I'm going to go kill a guy. I've never thought that. And I'm, and I'm willing to bet you all the money I have in my bank account, not a lot, but I will lay it down right now and say, I think I can go another 29 years without committing that one. But anger? Jesus, are you serious? That's an impossible standard. Or what about when he says that you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wait, Jesus, are you saying I can't just look? I mean, what's a look going to do? Like, what's a look going to hurt? Who's that going to hurt? I mean, my wife will never know. I chose her after all. She's mine. Or, or come on, I mean, like my husband's not going to know. He's kind of let himself go a little bit. And this guy's handsome, but he's my boo. Like, I'm not walking out on him. I'm married to him. What's, what's a look going to hurt, Jesus? Remember, Jesus said he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them both. And in fact, Jesus repeatedly reminds his listeners throughout this sermon of that fact when he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, or when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, right? So where the law and the prophets, they may have spoken this way of old, my word has authority that their word does not. My word trumps their word. Why? Because they were simply messengers, but I'm the king, right? They spoke on behalf of the Lord. I am the Lord. Jesus speaks with the authority of his father and he speaks with the authority of God because he is God, which means then that my thoughts, that my feelings, my opinions, and my emotions, they don't get to determine what's ultimately true and right and good in the world. And like my lived experience doesn't supersede the supremacy of God's word and the authority of Jesus. I, as a citizen in his kingdom, and to, am to yield my life in submission and, and to the formation of his word and his commands. And then he says in Matthew 5, 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now church, I I want you to understand that the gospel of grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And those are different. Right? There's no amount of God's grace that can be earned or bought. It is freely and fully given in Christ Jesus. Amen? But the gospel is not opposed to the people of God making every effort to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians, because it is God working in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. And so all of that is is my long lead-in to say two things, that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' discipleship guide. It is a reorientation of all of life in accordance with God's law, in the freedom of God's grace, and with the help of God's Holy Spirit for those who follow Jesus. And the second is that Jesus is thoughtful and intentional with how he orders this sermon. Like nothing about Jesus' teaching is random. It's not as if 
Jesus got on the mountaintop and had a big piece of paper or parchment in front of him and he spun around five times with his eyes closed and then opened them and put his finger somewhere and said, okay, this time I'm going to teach about lust. That's not what happened. No, all good communicators know that you have to think through the progression and direction of your sermon, your lesson, your TED Talk. Jesus is no different. And so we cannot just brain dump what we read in the Beatitudes as we move into Jesus's interaction with the law, the prophets, and the religious teachers of his day. They all work together. We need the Beatitudes as we move into this section where Jesus addresses the law. Just as our passage this week, it builds on the passage from last week, where in Matthew 5, 27 through 29, Jesus addresses the sin of lust. And we've already read that. But where he talks about the, the, the sin of lust, he goes, okay, you've heard that it was, it was all about adultery. The law was about adultery. Don't commit adultery. But now I'm saying to you, the bar is actually higher than that. The bar is you don't look at a woman. You don't look at a man with lust in your heart. You are guilty of adultery if you do that. And then he says after that in verse 29 and 30, that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is saying to this crowd that's listening to him on the mountain, Take your sin seriously. Be aggressive towards it and kill it, lest it kill you. But then he transitions in Matthew 5, 31 through 37, and this is our passage this morning. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so Jesus moves in the Sermon on the Mount from lust to divorce. And while the topic of teaching is divorce, I think Jesus has a greater end or a greater goal in mind. In fact, the conversation here is rather brief. It only gives two verses of Jesus addressing it in the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew 19, Jesus has a very similar conversation where he went into greater detail when confronting the Pharisees and scribes. And so in Matthew 5, he's, he's teaching this crowd on the mountain. Um, he's addressing the, the laws that they're familiar with and the teachings that they're familiar with. And then in Matthew 19, it's a little different because you've got the scribes and Pharisees coming to Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're not a listening. It's not a good faith dialogue. Like they're trying to trap him in his own words so that he might say something that violates the law and they can then use against him as they try to condemn him. That's the context of Matthew 19. And so the Pharisees and scribes, they come to him and it says that they're testing him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they, being the Pharisees, said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and then to send her away? And he, Jesus, said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, you have this mentioning of a divorce certificate, first by Jesus in chapter 5, second by the Pharisees in chapter 19. In both cases, it's a reference to Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament. It's not going to be on your screens. I'm going to read it for you, though, where it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, that's an important word, in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then, a lot of ifs and ands, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination of the Lord. Did you hear all of the conditional clauses in there? It's a very specific, very specific provision. Now, I wanted to read that in its entirety to note a couple things. One, you will not find in that passage an admonition or command for divorce. Again, this is a very specific provision in the Mosaic law. At no point in this text will you find divorce as something encouraged or recommended. In fact, you will not find divorce as a thing that's ever recommended or encouraged anywhere in Scripture. The second thing is, as we've already noted, it's very specific, meaning this Mosaic law had a specific provision or a un- in, in a unique situation And so it places some rather restrictive guidelines on this provision. And then the third thing to take note of is the word indecency. Now, this did not include adultery because there were already some other laws in Israel and procedures when a wife, in particular, if a wife was suspected of being an adulterer, she was taken to the priest and basically the Lord decided, is she innocent or guilty? They kind of took it out of the hands of the husband who could have made any claim. But also if either spouse was found to be an adulterer, it was a capital crime. They could be sentenced to death if found guilty. What this is talking about is not adultery. But this word indecency, it does carry the weight of something um, extremely shameful. Now, um, all of the specifications in this provision, they were put in place to, to to control a couple things. One, the rate of divorce in Israel was through the roof. It was through the roof. And so God allows this certificate of divorce, but you catch all those conditional clauses. Those are there because divorce was happening at a rampant scale in Israel. And God says, that's too much. It's time to control this thing. So he makes a provision and, and to control the rate of, of divorce in Israel at the time. But then secondly, in a culture where a woman's entire livelihood was 
dependent upon the man that she's connected to, either her father or her husband, this is God protecting the women of Israel when they are extremely, extremely vulnerable and at a moment where they are treated as expendable. And so this is put in place to protect the women of Israel from being cast aside by some horn dog husband who wanted to sleep around, give her a piece of paper and call it righteous. God said, we're not doing that. You will not treat my daughters that way. And so given this certificate, she's then free to remarry and it prohibited the first husband from a second shot. And so he decides, I want to leave my wife for a younger, better version. And then she goes and finds another husband. It turns out a couple years down the road, she's single again. And he's like, hey, what if we gave this a second shot? God said, absolutely not. You don't get a second shot. So take this decision very, very seriously. This is God's provision to ensure his daughters were taken care of and not taken advantage of. Over time, there are two schools of thought that began to develop in Israel that competed for the Jewish imagination. The first being the school of Shammai, the second being the school of Hillel. Shammai was a teacher who was really conservative in in his interpretation of the law, especially as it pertained to that word indecency. Hillel, however, was extremely liberal with his interpretation of the law. And he interpreted the word indecency to mean essentially anything that you find displeasing about your wife. And so one commentator notes that he took it to the furthest possible conclusion and used it to justify divorce in the case of a husband hating his wife's cooking. So she burnt the dinner. You didn't like that? Give her a certificate. She's out the door. Or if he found her looks to be plain and he lost interest in her, or if he simply became attracted to a younger and more attractive woman. These are the two schools of thought. Can you guess which one won out in the public space? The school of Hillel. Well, why? Because when left to itself to determine right from wrong, the human heart will always gravitate towards the position or belief that makes provision for the deepest and darkest desires of the flesh to be artificially justified. To say that differently, we believe what we want to believe so that we can do what we want to do. And then it's the sin nature of man that we then go out and look for teachers, influencers, and lawmakers who will create inroads for us to justify our actions. This is why the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they're not trying to have a good faith discussion about divorce and marriage. They're coming to Jesus under the assumption that divorce is permissible for any reason. As long as you give the wife a piece of paper, you are fulfilling the law of Moses. They don't care what Jesus thinks about divorce. They know what they think and they want to try and trap him in his words. They're convinced he's wrong and they're right. And Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so this is where Jesus begins to get to the heart of the issue. Because what they want to do is talk about divorce. What they want to do is say, okay, what's permissible? When? What makes it okay for us within the bounds of the law to get out of our marriage? And Jesus says, you are having the wrong conversation. Let's talk about marriage. Like let's, let's, let's redirect this thing and let's talk about what God created in the beginning. 
marriage to be this beautiful union between one man and one woman and, and, and the two become one flesh in this union and it is meant to last a lifetime. And the Pharisees are like, but what about the certificate? You know, the one Moses talked about. And Jesus says, do you know that's only there because your hearts were so, so hard? Like God had to limit y'all somehow. But regardless, divorce was never God's intention for marriage. You're asking the wrong question. And then Jesus, both in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, ends the discussion with this one exception. He says in verse 32 of Matthew 5, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, when Jesus says sexual immorality here, he's speaking like that word is a general word. It's used in a general sense to communicate or to capture the idea of any sexual activity that goes beyond the scope of the one man, one woman, one flesh union of marriage. And so the one exception Jesus made, the one provision that he makes for divorce and emphasizes here the severity of it is sexual immorality. Now, I confess to you this morning, church, that this is a hard text to preach on for a couple reasons. In fact, when I looked at the preaching calendar and saw that my name was on this text, I had a very unrighteous word that popped into my mind for Bobby Pruitt. (laughs) This is a hard one to preach. And here's why, a couple reasons. The first is that if if the statistics are true, divorce has touched more than 50% of you in this room in some form or fashion. And my guess is that the ripple of that has been wide. And for those of you that it's touched, it's been incredibly painful. And so for some of you, this isn't just another passage. Like this isn't just, let's talk about anger. For some of you, this is extremely personal. And we'll touch on that more in a moment. But second, this is hard because even this week, I found myself wanting to object. Like even this week, I found myself wanting to fight with Jesus, wanting to duke it out a little bit. And, and I think it's because I, as I'm reading this passage, as I'm, I'm literally, y'all, I'm reading every commentary I can going, yeah, but what about? Okay, but have you considered this scenario? Son of God, have you thought about this one? There's surely there's another exception to the rule here. And to be fair, Paul in the book of, uh, or, or to the Corinthian church, he does address uh, divorce in the case of abandonment. When he's writing to this church where you've got pagans becoming Christians and their, their spouse isn't becoming a Christian and their spouse is leaving them because they're a Christian, Paul addresses divorce in the case of abandonment. And there's a lot of conversation about this principle and how it applies today. But here's why I wrestled this week. Because in 1969, the first state in the United States passed a law allowing for no-fault divorce. And by 2010, all 50 states in the U.S. have have since signed into law no-fault divorce laws, which means that at any moment, at any time in the United States of America, either spouse can file for divorce without cause. And so much like the Pharisees and the people At the time of Jesus' teaching, I think we as a culture have been conditioned to believe that divorce is just normal. Like it just kind of happens sometimes. And it sucks and it hurts and we don't like it, but it's just part of life. It just happens. And so what's happened then in, in, in our cultural imagination is that the exception has become the rule. 
And that freedom in this sense is shown in one's own ability to either enter or exit a marriage at their own will. And so, so it becomes normal then for a husband to leave his wife for a new and better model. Or it becomes normal for wives to walk out on their husbands because he's not, he's not emotionally available to me. Or it becomes normal for husbands to leave his wife to find a new younger one because she's naggy and needy and we just kind of fell out of love along the way. Or it's normal for a wife to, to love her career more than her husband and to say, he's just kind of a roadblock for me while I'm trying to climb the ladder of success. And so like, I'm, I'm going to leave him because it's better for both, both of us. He, he, needs a, he needs a wife that's like available for him. And I'm just not that person. And our culture celebrates this and calls it freedom. And even within the church, we've adopted this mindset, I think unintentionally, but we've adopted it to where now we say things like, I just think God would want me to be happy. And Paul in Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, again, I I know that some of you carry the wounds of divorce with you each and every day. I, I would imagine that there is an enormous amount of guilt and shame associated with that divorce. And I know that marriage is difficult that people are messy and life is really, really complicated. And if I may, I'd like to go back where I started for just a moment and say that God's grace and God's love and God's kingdom are not and cannot be earned. They are received by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. The kingdom of God is not for people with perfect marriages. A perfect marriage doesn't get you in in the same way that a divorce doesn't keep you out because your sin cannot outrun or outpace the love and grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so your marital failures are covered by God's grace if you are in Christ Jesus. And that's true of married folk too. Your marital failures are covered by the blood of Jesus and his blood is and was and will always be sufficient to cover you, to purify you, and to redeem you. And so your divorce, while significant, it does not define you, Christ does. If you're in him by faith and to the folks in the room who are single, who are dating, who are engaged, who are married, who might even be remarried, we need like Jesus to take marriage very, very seriously, whether it be our own or whether it be the marriage of our brothers and sisters. Like John Stott, he says in his commentary, to be preoccupied with the grounds for divorce is to be guilty of the very Pharisaism which Jesus condemned. His whole emphasis in debating with the rabbis was positive, namely on God's original institution of marriage as an exclusive and permanent relationship on God's yoking of two people into a union which they must not break. And one might add on his call to his followers to love and to forgive one another, to be peacemakers. There's the beatitudes coming back and in every situation of strife and discord. And so where the culture says, if it gets too hard, if you get bored, or this just didn't go as you thought it was going to go, the doors open, go ahead and leave. And the word of God says, how about we be poor in spirit? 
How about we be meek? How about we hunger and thirst for righteousness? How about in our marriages we be peacemakers? How about we pursue reconciliation and we fight like hell to preserve our marriages for what God has joined together? Man ought not separate so hastily. And may divorce be the last and final option for the people of God. May the world get a glimpse of God's goodness and glory through the persistence of his people in marriage. May we be salt and light as we fight for our marriages, even when they're hard, even when we're, we're just not feeling the magic. Now quickly, I do still want to touch on verses 33 through 37, Jesus' words about oaths because these two things actually connect. And so he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so in several Old Testament texts, you see these laws that are emphasizing the necessity of keeping one's vows or not taking the Lord's name in vain, essentially making a promise or swearing upon the Lord's name. And what the Pharisees had done and what they've modeled for the people of Israel was focus on the the vow formula, right? And so they're looking at the law, they're examining the law, and it says, well, don't make a vow or don't swear on the Lord's name. Don't take his name in vain. And so what would they do? They say, well, if the, if the law prohibits making a vow or oath to the Lord or in his name, then great, all we have to do is make an oath or make a vow, not in the Lord's name, but we'll vow on something else. And so then if we break our vow, it's okay. We didn't break the law. It's all good, right? And so this is the best example I could come up with, and I think it's pretty good, actually. If you're a parent of a toddler, I think you'll really get this. Uh, The other day I was watching Trolls 2, Trolls World Tour, for like the second time in one day. Anybody? Anybody else? Okay, so no, no one else. It's great. The first one's better. But um, we were watching Trolls 2. And uh, my daughter, Tay, and I were sitting there, and there's a scene in Trolls 2, and I'm about to say a lot that doesn't make any sense to you if you've never seen the Trolls movies, but the the queen of the Trolls, Queen Poppy, uh, she's making a promise. She's in a conversation with one of her friends, and they're, they're sitting there, and he's like, do you promise? And she's like, I promise. And he says, no, do you promise? And she then proceeds to, with her friend, make a promise, but not just any promise, It is the most sacred of all promises. The the promise to end all promises. Does anybody know what kind of promise that is? I see it. The pinky promise, right? And so in Trolls 2, Queen Poppy and her friend, they're about to make this pinky promise. And it's actually really intense and it's really funny. They like, they like come together and they like lock pinkies. And as they do, they begin to float like to levitate and spin around. And then there is this explosion of like glitter and energy that like goes throughout the land. And, and then like there are other trolls kind of like doing their thing. And when they, like they feel it, they feel the energy and they, they literally say, whoa, a pinky promise. Like it's pretty funny. But the point, the point of that, even the, the point in, of that scene in the movie is to emphasize the fact or highlight the fact that there are degrees or levels of promises, right? Like, like it's one thing for me to say I'm going to do something. It's another thing to say I'm going to, like to promise I'll do something. But boy, if we lock pinkies, 
Like, so help me God if I break that promise, right? And what Jesus is teaching to his disciples is, hey, that's unnecessary. (laughs) Just be men and women of integrity. Just be men and women who keep your word. Do what you say you will do. In fact, John Stott has a really great quote where he says, Christians should say what they mean and mean what they say. Our unadorned words should be enough, yes or no. And when a monosyllable will do, why waste our breath by adding to it? He then basically makes the argument that the fact that we have degrees of promises is proof that we are liars. Like I need a pinky promise because the odds of me not keeping my promise when I just make a promise, it's like 50-50, but it's like a 75% chance I'm just not going to do what I said if I don't promise it. That's why we have those. And Jesus is saying to his people, just have integrity. Do what you say you will do. Now, these connect, these two passages, divorce and oaths, they connect in two ways. One, Jesus puts an emphasis on the integrity of Christians, of kingdom people, and keeping the promises we've made. And that begins with our marriage vows. That begins in our homes with our husbands or our wives, and then it extends out from there to our neighbors and our friends. And then the second way that these two things connect, I believe, is that we as God's people image Christ when we are faithful to our wedding vows and when we are people who speak with integrity. Like we image Jesus when we let our yes be yes. The yes that you made if you're married at the altar when you cut covenant with your spouse, you, you image Jesus when you keep those promises till death do you part. And even if you're not married, even if you're divorced, you image Jesus when you let your yes be yes to your neighbors and friends and coworkers. And so as we transition now to partaking of the Lord's table in just a moment, I do want you to consider this, that Jesus he keeps his word. Right? That's how we actually image him when we do these things is because he keeps his words. He is faithful to all that he promised. And that is good news for you and for me, church. It's good news because when he says things like, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, he meant it. Like we can trust him there. Or when he says things like that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God the Father did not send God the Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. When he says things like that, we can trust him. Or when he says things like my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life, they will never never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand because my father who has given them to me is greater than all and you can't snatch them from my father's hand and my father and I are one. When Jesus says things like that because he, he keeps his promises and we can trust him, that's good news. It means if you're in Christ, he's not letting you go. Or if on the cross, when he told the thief that he would soon be with him in paradise, the thief could count on the word of Jesus because of his integrity. He keeps his promises. Or when he says that I will come again in power and glory, church, we can trust him now. And finally, Jesus is the true and better bridegroom. Like in Ephesians 5, he is the the husband who lays down his life even to the point of death for his bride. 
In Revelation 19, he's the the groom that comes in glory to retrieve his bride. And in Hosea, he's the groom who remains faithful to his bride despite the fact that she steps out on him time and time again. That's us, by the way. He's faithful to the covenants he's made with his church, his bride, and we image Jesus when we fight to honor and preserve the vows that we made to our spouse on the day that we entered covenant. And we image Christ when we keep our promises and our yes is yes and our no is no. After all, church discipleship to Jesus, it really boils down to thinking like Jesus, being like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And when we do that, He is honored. We as a people flourish and the world around us is blessed. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that we are a people who even now are living in your kingdom. By grace through faith, you have made it available to us and we have received it. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who keep the vows, the oaths, the promises that we made and help us to be men and women who fight for reconciliation, who fight to be peacemakers in our marriages, in our friendships, and with our neighbors, God. Because if it's not for your grace, Jesus, none of us, none of us are even close to sniffing the kingdom of heaven. And yet, because of your grace, despite our failures in our marriages and in our relationships, despite all of the unkept promises we've ever made, despite all of our sin, Lord Jesus, because of your grace, we're welcomed in as sons and daughters, heirs to the throne. Our sins are forgiven. And that is what we celebrate this morning at this table. Thank you, King Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.